Hi there and welcome to Scale, a podcast for modern media. I am your host Stuart Ritchie, the founder and lead developer at Powered by Coffee. Powered by Coffee is a web and software development team focusing on technology issues facing the media today. Scale is a podcast about how technology impacts the media and how the media impacts technology in return. Everything from ad tech and privacy to hosting and content management. We're interested in what's happening today, what's happening tomorrow and where we might end up in the future. Welcome to episode three. Today's guest is Dan Moore. Dan Moore is Head of Developer Relations at FusionAuth, a platform we use at work fairly frequently. If you've not heard of FusionAuth, it's effectively an API for managing user accounts. We kind of take the view that you don't build your own credit card payments, so why should you build your own identity management? It's a really enjoyable episode, and Dan gives us some good insight into how to structure these things, why it's useful. We think you'll you really enjoy. With me today, I have a really cool guest, Dan from uh, FusionAuth. Dan is the head of developer relations. FusionAuth is a web scale identity uh, management platform um, that we have used uh, on a couple of projects and we really like it enough. So thank you very much, Dan, for, for agreeing to be on with us today to talk about identity. Um, with FusionAuth in particular and kind of other identity scale platforms and how, how that impacts with with media. So I just want to like get ahead of something as well. So increasingly we're noticing um, media brands talking about identity, meaning two things. Um, mm. So the identity that me and you kind of are dealing with today, like this user is logging in to this platform and here's who they are and kind of what they have access to. And more in a data sense, like how are we identifying this user in fingerprints? Um, so just to get ahead of that, today we're talking about the old school identity uh, and, f- and how we how that can be useful for for publishers. Um, so, so sorry, Stuart, can I peel that back a little bit? That's a really interesting yeah. thing. So you're saying you have identity old school sense where people kind of raise their hand and choose to like create an account and log in and yeah. have all the things that come with that, and then you're talking about identification. Of, of anonymous folks and kind of yeah. knowing, kind of de-anonymizing them? Is that, is that what you mean by that form of identity or, or more like kind of just having an aggregate data so you have some idea who's reading your, your website or your magazine? It's, it's kind of all of those. So it's looking at who is who effectively. And eventually, you know, that starts as an anonymous profile, but it might be for your, your fingerprinting people to be like, okay, this user is this user. And even if they've cleared their browser history and got rid of their cookies, we can still have a good idea of, of who they are. Not really from a functionality perspective and like a web app site, but more from an advertising and marketing perspective, which is why it comes up more and more because people are now, where you would have had a first or third party cookie you could have relied upon. Obviously in Europe, there's been a lot of changes with you know, GDPR over the last few years. Kind of the expansion of that changes in how Google is handling identity um, and also particular rules in um, the United States. I know there's a lot of rules in California about like user protection, user privacy. So we're seeing the the word identity kind of get polluted a little bit. So we might need to just be clear about it. But it's it's such an interesting space because one eventually leads into the other. Where ideally, you have that kind of data profile that you've built up from anonymous users to turn into oh, here's a profile on this person that we know who they are and we can action that data somehow. But yeah, right. just want to get ahead of that. Um, yeah. 
you want to give us an introduction to yourself, Dan, because you can tell us more about you than I ever could. Sure, sure. Yeah. So again, thanks so much for having me on. I am head of DevRel at a company called FusionAuth that Stuart mentioned. We are an authentication, authorization, and user management provider, similar to Auth0 or Okta or AWS Cognito, if you're in that space. And I've been a developer for about two decades, played a lot of different roles, been a contractor, CTO, engineering manager, technical instructor. And a couple of years ago, I moved into DevRel because I really enjoy educating developers. And so developer relations, if your listeners aren't familiar with it, kind of combines coding and software development with education and marketing. So for me, that was a sweet spot, but yeah. Cool. And then, you know, Phyllis and Fusionoff, we've given, given a very brief overview on, on what it is, but for those who kind of haven't maybe heard of this before, or it's never occurred to them, this is the thing that can be run as a service external to whatever they're building already. And you, can you give us some background on, on it and where it came from? Yeah. So Fusionoff, um, grew out of another product that and got peeled out when people, when the founders realized that this was actually a real problem. And the problem that it solves is in every application, there's this core bit of functionality that is login, registration, forgot password, other pieces of the journey that are basically the front door of your application, but aren't really differentiated. And yet they're kind of critical because if someone can't get into your application, then the, the all the great features behind your application that your application offers aren't really valuable to the user. And it's also relatively high risk because it's PII, because it's credentials that often get stolen. I don't know if your users have visited the website, haveibeenpwned.com, but it's a great website out there that... Uh, a, uh, they collect compromised passwords and they don't reach out and do it. It's more like compromises happen and then they get collated there. And there's over 11 billion usernames and password combinations on that website that have been compromised. And so if, if username and password is compromised, if my username and password is compromised, then that means someone else can act as me. And that may mean reading an article or buying something in my name. And obviously that's problematic. So with FusionAuth and with this kind of whole class of authorization authentication servers, you have something that's critical, that's scary to deal with because it's high risk, but it's also undifferentiated and it's pretty common across different applications. That is a very good candidate for something that can be outsourced to uh, a company or an organization or an open source project that focuses on it. And FusionAuth plays in that space, I think, pretty well. Obviously, I'm talking my book a little bit when I say that, but uh, I think that the most important thing for your users to take away, for your listeners to take away is they shouldn't be building their own off. And yes. FusionAuth is one option. There are others, and we can talk about some of the others. I'm happy to have that discussion because I want to educate people to make the right decision. But the wrong decision, and we've seen this over and over again, is people choosing to build it themselves. And yes. the way I phrase it and the way I'd sum it up is very few organizations and companies would build their own database. And I think building auth servers in the same category of decision, right? For one-tenth of 1% of people, it makes sense to do. Everyone else should be looking at an off-the-shelf solution. Great. 
So I think then that's you, like the word you used was undifferentiated. Um, so just to kind of like give that, I suppose, a little thought that it's in effectively every application. You know, every non-trivial application, somebody's going to need to log in. Um, otherwise, it's probably just a blog. And even then, a blog has some level of off because some, unless you're entirely static and running it off GitHub or something incredibly too technical like that, someone needs to log in and have privileged access to perform actions. Um, and I suppose it's one of those things you, it's not immediately obvious to me that you would outsource this because it is a fundamental part of almost every starting point you would look at to build an application. Mm -hmm. We're primarily a WordPress development agency. WordPress has a user system built in, maybe not a very good one, but it has one, Laravel. Um, if you go and start doing anything non-trivial with Laravel, some of the very first things you'll do is install their um, authentication packages, whether you're doing with Nova and building out an admin panel, or I've forgotten the precise ones, um, Sentry, and I can't remember the name of the other package, but it's very quickly the thing that you do, sure. and it's, it's where you start. So I, to me, until we started working together and some things, it wasn't obvious the benefits of kind of, of looking at it um, this way. Sure. So let's maybe think about that a little bit. I've increasingly moving towards the idea that we don't build our own payment processors, despite the fact that almost everyone could. Like, I don't want to build the Stripe API every time sure. we have to do this. And it's such a critical piece now. Why am I continuing to build this over and over and over again? Um, where we're not developers that specialize in building an authentication system. And you know, five, 10, 15 years ago, it was very simple. Like, here's a username or actually ideally an email because who remembers a username uh, and a password sure. login. Um, but it's so much more complicated than that now to, to get through, you have to look at things like two-factor. You have to look at things like how many places is this account logged in? And um, Netflix at the moment is going through a lot to do with password sharing of like, okay, great. How are we identifying that these users yeah. are logging in from five, six different places? Like off and identification is so much more complicated than people will ever realize. So that's where I think there's a lot of value in fusion off. Sure, sure. And I mean, I think uh, I, I want to I be, you know, precise like i think that starting out when you have a single application wordpress or a laravel app or something like that going to that initial built-in user management system is a great start right again you're not building your own you're using a a battle-tested library you say wordpress um authentication may not be the best i i think it is great for what it does and it's a starting point where we run into issues or where our customers and users run into issues pretty quickly, which you allude to is, you know, if you create a user table for every different application, you run into two issues really quickly. The first is um, now you have this PII spread throughout your applications and you need to make sure that they're very secure so that those passwords don't get stolen. You also need to make sure that the, um, any new functionality that you want to introduce around authentication is deployed to each individual application. And the other thing that you run into is that uh, the user account is isolated. And so if you have three applications, well, now when you have a new employee or a new user, you have to deploy them to each of those applications. And so 
at that point, like, I think if you have one application and it's kind of the primary one, you're fine using a built-in system. And again, that's way better than building your own. But I've given talks where I ask how many people have just one application and very few companies and organizations have just one. It's yeah. very common to have, you know, a support system and, and, and or other custom applications. And at that point, having one place where all your user data is really makes a lot more sense. And this is especially true because the standards are actually there, right? This is not a wild west where you have to do custom integrations. OIDC is a standard that's been around since 2014 and is a great way to basically let every application interface with an auth server in a very standardized way. So you mentioned OIDC there. What, what is OIDC? Sure. So OID stands for OpenID Connect. And what it is, is it's a protocol that basically defines how an application like, you know, WordPress could interact with an auth server. And I don't know if we need to dig too deep into the, the nuts and bolts of it. I think it's just something you want to look for on the label, right? Because sure. that will tell you that there's a world of documentation, libraries, and developers who understand this. You know, I know you all understand this very well, that it's, it's basically kind of like USB, right? Like it's a standard and I can, anybody can make a USB cord and I can plug it into any other USB outlet. Yeah. OIDC is maybe not <laughs> as perfect as USB, <laughs> but, it's, but it's far better than rolling your own and trying to do custom integrations across a bunch of different applications. I think then that's, I mean, that's such an important point to hit on with it because that moves us beyond like, this is the auth server for this application to this is an auth server that can be talked to by many, many applications, regardless of how they were built, because there is a standard in between, like a common language that all these tools and endpoints and things talk to make sure that um, that user database is essentially portable. So if you re-platform your application, say, so you go from WordPress to Drupal or, you know, Symfony to Laravel or whatever you've backed it up with, you're not reworking the user authentication system. You're just reworking how you talk to, to the, the author. And just one more thing while I come back as well. You mentioned like who has one app. I would venture to say no one has one app because you might have one or website, you know, using those kind of words interchangeably. You might have one public facing version of that, but there's almost always a staging version and a test version. And they're all working on separate databases because they've all got slightly separate data. If you're provisioning users, admin users, editorial users, and folk who have you know, publishing control into those applications, most organizations forget to de deprovision users in those backup ones. And that gives them a point which they can get back in. You know, it's not just one app, it's how many environments does that app live in and how many different places for ingress are possible. So I would go to the say, no one has one quote unquote app. You know, there's lots and lots of instances of every app out there. That's a great point. You know, I mean, I kind of jump immediately to you have an app and then you have like a customer support system and a forum and other things, but those environments and especially controlling access to them with from controlling privileged users access to them is, is really important. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that can vary organization wise. We've seen orgs that, you know, all their publishing happens in their production environment, which is fine if that's how they want to work. We've seen other ones that 
spin up a new environment for each edition that goes out and then they swap those over. So they're continually provisioning new users into this new environment, but are they getting deprovisioned when those users leave or on the way out? That's the, what? that's the big question. Do those environments continue to live on, like as long as that edition is live and other people are looking at it, or does do they get they, cycled off? They can get cycled off. They can get reworked. So what you might do is have an off one that is being worked on, and then you point all your live traffic at it whenever the edition swaps over, and then the one that you know was previously live, you know, pulls all the new content over, and then that's where the editors work to bring it up to date until the next publish goes over because it's easier to swap those or very technically easier to swap those CDMs over and kind sure. of like have a potential reverse proxy or some other system where it's like, okay, we don't want to mess with the database. We just want to have it and then point all the traffic at the new place. And then sense. you've got kind of two banks that you're going backwards and forwards between. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that does point out something that is interesting to me is you want to automate it as much of this as possible. And the user you know, I, I focus on user stuff, right? But the user stuff is just part of the piece. And so you want to make sure that whatever environment you're building, you don't have to have some checklist that a fallible human being like myself has to run through to to deprovision when an editor leaves or gets promoted or, or whatnot. Like you want a single user store. And frankly, you probably want single source of record for every piece, right? Like not just for users, but for articles and other other pieces of data yeah absolutely i think then that's one of the more interesting things i think about fusion Auth as well is that it doesn't just have to kind of work with its own user database it can be backed by user sources from other places and so we're kind of talking about like what happens in a corporate world here so it's not unfeasible for that to in turn be connected to like an active directory where a user is being provisioned in using Fusion Auth or another identity system to say, okay, this user has access to all these things and they have these permissions. And then that system is in turn controlling Fusion Auth to get all those users in and out. That's, that's, that's powerful in and of itself. Right. So that's the magic of your users may not be familiar with this term, but it's called identity federation. So mm-hmm. the idea is that you don't have to own, like Fusion Auth itself doesn't have to be the system of record. It can be like an interface that defers to other people. And for enterprises, it can be systems like LDAP or Active Directory or Azure AD or Okta. For your consumers, you may want to offer something like Facebook or Google or LinkedIn, you know, depending on who your, your audience is. And putting an interface in front of that means that you have this layer of indirection, which introduces some complexity, but also gives you some power, right? Because Fusion Auth, for instance, takes care of keeping track of how you log in with Google or Facebook. And if Google or Facebook changes, Fusion Auth will take care of that for you. You know, our developers are watching this. It's not going to decay and your users, and you'll be looking at a chart sometime and say, well, why is nobody logging with Facebook anymore? Well, because of our community, because it's our business, we're going to focus on that. So I think that that ability to like delegate authentication to some other system is is a powerful attribute of of servers it's a great point yeah so bringing it back to to publishers a little bit and kind of i'm aware that you know obviously while you're you're with fusion off they don't necessarily want to make this just to look at all the great things fusion off does um, sure but i think it's such conceptually such a powerful powerful idea 
from a user experience perspective, you know, a user can register on one brand or one kind of aspect within that publisher and have their information propagate out to, you know, five, six, seven other, other brands or even user portals or kind of unified membership systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so, so useful for that kind of thing to give that central management. So how, I suppose then the question is like, how does that kind of work? What are the best ways that you have found of structuring sort of applications, not necessarily applications, but structuring instances of identity management to be like, great, here are, I need to manage identity, a single identity pool, a pool of users across like six, seven different places that they might might end up being kind of what does what does that look like conceptually how what are the moving pieces that people need to think about if they're coming to look at this on their own sure so i think that you're going to want to think about you know kind of the pools of users first of all mm-hmm. and if you're in a in the media business you probably want to have the biggest pool of users you can you're not going to want to kind of segment them out although there may be situations where you have certain pools that only have access to to certain applications or websites so you want to think about kind of permissioning right like who has access to which brand and when do they get provisioned into that access you know do they have to pay something do they have to have an approval by a salesperson or is it kind of self-serve the other thing you want to think about is is roles and what kind of access they can have within the brand right like everyone may get a default role of a viewer Somebody else who pays a little bit more might get access to premium content. Somebody else who pays a little bit more might get access to like webcasts or some other library of content. And so that can all be modeled inside a robust auth server. Uh, notice I explicitly didn't say Fusion Auth, right? Like, again, there are many solutions out there, but we're looking for things like RBAC, which is stands for role-based access control, which is that mapping of users to roles you want to look at things like groups. So how you can group users. And again, it's hard to give generic best practices because, <laughs> you know, every, every application is different. Every company is different, but these are some of the kind of technical concepts you're going to want to be looking for. We want to look at that a little bit. Cause I think understanding how you might structure like an application identity server to be like, okay, these are, this is granular enough control to give people how they want to be accessed versus, you know, a bit of a free-for-all. And then what is ultimately manageable because realistically the needs of that business aren't static. They're going to change over time. So I think that was one of the things that we knew we did incorrectly or not optimally the first few times we looked at it was like, okay, we'll structure it this way. It's like, oh, no, actually we really want more. We don't want one big pool of users. We want a big user table, and then that's kind of separated up to Anarchus and mm. specific apps where an app would have been like website A, website B, brand C, you know. And so that's, that's that, that ability to control like A, this user should have access to app A and app B, but not app C. Is that kind of the reason yeah. you, you did that? Okay, yeah. makes sense. And then within that particular groups, I think is what we went with. And then the rules within the groups, I can't remember the exact, because there's so many different kind of little, little things. But even then, you know, there's debate around how far you go down, like how much of the application layer is integrated with it. Like, cool, do we, we have all these different permissions in the app. Do we want to like map those one-to-one to, you know, 
roles yeah. in Fusion Auth, or do we want to kind of have a bit of an abstraction to give control back to the the app side? It's an interesting thing that can be difficult to get get right in such a way that you can move on from it in in the future if you need. Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of see like two different patterns and I've seen a third one get introduced. And the first is you're just using FusionAuth for authentication and you're going to build your own kind of custom permissioning structure inside your application that obviously gives you the most power and control and also puts the most responsibility on you. The second is you can leverage FusionAuth and its model, right? So that's, you know, we have a high level, we have tenants, which are basically user pools, we have lower level of applications, which are things you could log into. And then we have groups, which lets you group users kind of on top of those applications. Okay. Now, of course, that means you have to constrain your thinking to kind of what FusionAuth can model. And that may or may not be problematic. The third thing we've seen kind of come in, there's actually the rise of these authorization as a service vendors. Okay. So Servos, Permit.io are two that I've I've interacted with. And... They basically, you you have an authentication event and then you sprinkle calls to this authentication as a service, or sorry, authorization as a service vendor into your application. And that gives you a lot more fine-grained control. That's really where you need, um, you want to centralize your authorization, but you don't want to build that yourself. Okay. Yeah. I have heard of these particular like staff providers. I'll have to... I have to go and have a look into those. Um, okay, that's interesting. So then when it comes to, you know, I guess back to like, like an infusion off and some of its comparisons, and I know you mentioned a couple of like other players in the space. Auth0, Okta, LogMeIn, is that the other one? I think it's called OneLogin. Is- Azure and Amazon-based competitors. Uh, yep. So I mean, are, are all the players in the space fairly similar? How differentiated are they beyond I'm already in the Microsoft ecosystem so i'm going to stick with that i'm already in the aws ecosystem i'm going to stick with that true um, you know how, how did the players stack up against each other yeah i mean i think that it, so first of all there's like a base level functionality we mentioned oidc previously all these players should support oidc and yeah. so if all you're looking for is kind of plain old login then you could be served by any of them at that point, you start to look at what are differentiating features. One key one is where you can host. A lot of these players are SaaS only, or in the case of Auth0, I think if you pay enough money where it's many, many zeros, they will okay. uh, run inside your AWS cloud. Um, FusionAuth is self-hostable, or you can pay us to run it for you. And then you get to other kind of unique differentiators, right? Cognito is really great if you're building on the AWS ecosystem because it has some really fine integration with uh, AWS permission, with AWS IM, right? Azure AD is really, you know, again, you alluded to this, you're in the Microsoft ecosystem, you know how to run it anyway, you're using it for your employees, you know, use it for your customers too, Trying to think of some other differentiators. You know, some of it is we mentioned automation, right? Which is typically done through API calls. And some of these are more or less, some of them are less available for automation and then others are more API first. I happen to think is pretty API first, but that can be important when you're starting to think about scaling, right? It's one thing we have two properties. If you have a 200, 
you really need to be able to do everything again, not just user stuff, but everything else via scripts and, and software. Yeah. Great. Maybe is this fusion off open source or available source? FusionHealth is not open source. And there is, if you're looking at an open source solution, Keycloak is the one that we're most often compared to in terms of functionality. There are others out there. FusionHealth has a free version. And I don't know whether, this might be dating myself, but I remember there was free as in speech and free as in beer. FusionHealth is free as in beer. So you can't look at the source, but you can run it yourself. And we've actually had people running with millions of users on it and they're managing themselves and good on them. So yes. that's kind of our model is Great. nice. Cool. And then I guess you mentioned kind of automation and stuff there. One of the things that I think is most interesting is looking at user data kind of from an analytics mm-hmm. perspective and trying to like parse like trends, parse like, you know, whatever insight you can get from the assets that you hold. How how doable is that across the competitors keep and you know whether that's getting it into you know in a business intelligence platform i mean obviously if you're using some of like the microsoft tooling or the aws tooling they're going to integrate pretty easily but the other players you know is that it's straightforward to get get that into a table and start and start querying or, or something like that does yeah. that make sense? The question is a bit rambly of a statement. <laughs> no, I think, it's, I think it's a great question. I think that it's actually a critical thing that you want, right? We talked about like the user experience of having one user be able to kind of go across multiple brands and multiple platforms, mm-hmm. which is a great user experience. But you also want to think about the business value. And there is a ton of business value in not having to run a query across seven different user tables to see what Dan has been up to. And so I think that's, you know, to tie back to earlier part of the conversation, that's a great reason for this standalone auth server, right? Unknown user data store is to give you that reporting insight, even if what you're doing is just going there and pulling stuff out of it. You know, so I would say that what I've seen, I haven't delved deeply into this with, with the competitors. Most of them have some pretty decent APIs, when you're in the SaaS world, you want to be careful about throttling, making sure that you open a support ticket if you're going to be pulling down a bunch of data. With FusionAuth, what we push a lot is, is what are called webhooks, which is where an event happens and we push out a bunch of data and you can store that however you want. And that make, turns into more of an event-driven system. I haven't seen that functionality in too many of the other competitors. So I, I think that there's... so. To sum up, I think there's kind of two ways to get the data. The first is kind of a poll where you're the one going to the data store and saying, hey, give me everybody who's registered since yesterday. And the other is push where every time someone registers, you're getting an event and then you can kind of act on that as you see fit. And the latter is more modern, I feel like. You know, the former works, but the latter is going to give you better real-time results. Great. Yeah, I suppose even from like a, a developer perspective, if you have a push, you could run a small serverless function to process that, you know, just as you need rather than having to maintain and run a service that handles it or all you, the time. Or you throw it into S3 or something else, and then you have that later in it, you know, forever, essentially. So you can run analogs on that forever. Yeah. Um, just keep an eye on the time on that. Thank you again for, for being as generous as you have been. I guess it'd be great to to kind of sum up like identity for 
for publishers, identity and authentication, and kind of why it's you know much more valuable to kind of outsource this to a service, fusion author, otherwise, as opposed to to doing it your own. And I think you kind of some of those key ports are. It's a big, dangerous, scary thing to write yourself, and almost everyone tries it. Very error prone, and actually, is quite a specialist skill. So, why do it yourselves whenever we can, you know, go out to services, both you know, proprietary and open source, that people are looking at this full time. It's their job to know and do it well, and kind of leverage the experts there, and better user experience, kind of being able to, you know, share data across multiple brands, kind of have it be as an experience for your end user as possible there's operations benefits from the business from a security perspective of like okay we only have to integrate in one place we're deprovisioning you know users from our team to make sure that everyone's yeah. and then there's a the data aspect of being able to to get your user data out and be able to process it and query it and whatever insight you want to want to kind of garner from that did i did i miss anything the, i think that was a great summation the only thing i would add is that just like with any other outsourced solution, if someone's focusing on things, they can keep an eye to the future. There are new things coming down the pike, new forms of multi-factor authentication, which can help people secure their account, you know, new identity providers, we call them, or new federated identity solutions, right? Like logging with TikTok might be a thing now that wasn't there, you know, three years ago. And then there's new technologies like WebAuthn, which you just may not be familiar with, which is okay. basically lets me log in with touch ID or things like that. And by outsourcing to an auth provider who focuses on that, you get the benefit of them bringing these new features in addition to all the other operational and security benefits you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's web off. That's a great point. That's not a thing I know particularly very much about. I've heard it mentioned, but not being a mobile or kind of hardware developer. I've kind of passed up a little bit. Can you give us a little bit more on that at all? If you have it. Sure. I can give you a little 30-second spiel, but basically yeah. it's a way for, for people who are writing web applications that are running in browsers to access biometric authentication methods like Touch ID and Face ID with nothing more than some JavaScript. And it's a new standard that I think was codified in 2019, but is now supported by all the major browsers and all the major operating systems. And it lets you, as a website publisher, have a, a very secure means of authenticating a user. And it frankly, a very easy uh, method as well, because um, it's a lot easier to just hold your finger up to the fingerprint reader on your Mac than is type of username and password. Great. And as that, I suppose a lot of that is happening on device because they're not going to be sending you or us or anyone the biometric data off, off the device. That seems very difficult to do well. <laughs> Yeah, Incredibly I mean, I, the nice thing is that like the operating systems have built these pieces of software that talk this protocol and the browser talks the protocol and use web dev basically call a JavaScript API. You say like, hey, you know, you, you, you pass in a couple options and there's some security stuff in there too, but it's one call and you either get back like a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And so it's a, I think... It's, it has its flaws, like every technology or its strengths and weaknesses, but I think it's going to be really big for the consumer space to let sure. people authenticate easily. Cool. That sounds great. I look forward to seeing more about it. Dan, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you and Fusion Off, et cetera, or anywhere else you want to point them? 
Sure. Yeah. So you can learn more about Fusion Auth at FusionAuth.io. And you can learn more about me and hear some of my my ramblings on Twitter. I'm more DS. So M-O-O-R-E-D-S on Great. Twitter. Lovely. Well, thank you very much. Really appreciate it as always. And have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me, Stuart. Really appreciate it and learned a lot. Great. Thanks, man. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, please subscribe. Scale is available in all usual podcast places. Even better, uh, if you could leave us a review, that really helps us. If you're interested in finding out more about me or Powered by Coffee, you can find us on social media. And again, in all the usual places, links are in the show notes. Scale is currently going to come out every two weeks and we will see you then.